0: Hey everybody! It's Justin back with another episode, another mind-numbing episode of Mysterious Circumstances podcast. Welcome. Uh, if you've never listened to the show before, I cover various mysteries, uh, unsolved deaths, uh, disappearances. I do a little bit of everything, kind of mysterious or whatever. Something that stuff that sparks my interest and stuff that I think might spark other people's interest. Um. Today we got pretty good mystery for you. It is actually uh, an episode about the disappearance of Laureen Ron. So, for those of you who've never really heard of this missing person, it's kind of well known. It's starting to gain a little bit of steam in the podcast uh, community. Seen one or two other podcasts with episodes about it. Uh, I usually try to veer more towards lesser known and lesser done mysteries and deaths and strange occurrences or whatever, but this one is actually really interesting, grabbed my interest, I've actually been researching it here for a couple weeks, so, uh, hopefully we can come to a conclusion today, I highly doubt it though, uh, nobody has in, you know, roughly 36 years, so, you never know. But anyway, let's go ahead and get started here. Uh, Lore Lorene Ron was born on April third, nineteen sixty-six. Uh, she weighed about at the time of her disappearance, she weighed about ninety pounds and was about five foot four inches tall. I'm not exactly sure how how that works out in the metric system. I really did not go that far to see. Um, and basically, our case begins on April twenty sixth, nineteen eighty, in Manchester, New Hampshire, when Laureen is at the age of about fourteen. Uh her mom is Judith is dating a tennis player. And uh and by the way, for those of you who don't know, I do say a lot, I do stutter sometimes. I work on almost all memory. I do have a little bit of notes written down, but this is straight up like a discussion type. Podcast, so it will remain unscripted. But uh, back to the case. Uh, Judith, her mom, Judith Ron, is dating a pro tennis player, apparently. Um, she is going to leave town to see her boyfriend play in a tennis tournament. Now, usually, Laureen would always uh, join her mother on these trips when she would go out of town to watch him play. Uh, on this particular time, she did not. It was spring break at her school, so she wanted to hang out with some friends, and her mother agreed. So we have two friends <clears throat> that hang out with Laureen that night. Um, not 100% on their, sh- percent on their names. Uh, they were minors at the time, so the names were never released. So we are going to call one Janet Doe. It was a young lady, and the other gentleman is going to be called uh, John Doe, obviously. Um, so they're basically hanging out, drinking wine and beer. This is a straight-up testimony from the, uh, the two people who were there with her uh, on the last day she was seen. Uh, they're hanging out, drinking beer, drinking wine, uh, and it starts getting a little bit late. Well, John Doe thinks he hears voices out in the hallway, so he freaks out and ends up leaving out the back door. Now, they're in a third-story apartment. This is a little bit contradictory. Um, On the street that she lived on, on Merrimack Street in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, I did a little Google search. There are a lot of three-story apartments. There are actually triple-deckers there, too. Now, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Indiana, so we really don't see any of that stuff. But apparently on the East Coast, there's quite a bit of these what they call triple-deckers. And basically what they are is uh, three little houses stacked up on top of each other. Now, I'm not sure what floor they lived on. Now, judging by the address, if it was a triple-decker house and you saw 239, you would probably assume they were on the second floor, but we're not too sure. Um, all we know is that John Doe, who was, like I said, also a minor, uh, left out the back door when he freaked out. He thought it was uh, Lorreen's mom coming home early. So he leaves out the back door, and he specifically states in the police report that he heard Lorreen locking the door behind him. Uh, it's going to play a little bit of a role here in uh, just a second. And for the record, uh, I tried finding out what time uh, John Doe approximately left, and I could not really find anything on it, and that is actually from a lot of digging. So, with that being said, he specifically states he hears loreen lock the door behind him after he leaves out the back door. Now, leaving out the back door, I would assume, since there's a door, it's not, a apartment building on a higher level in which case it would be a fire escape and he would probably be crawling out a window or something so <clears throat> laurine and her uh other guests are still there uh we're calling her janet doe um janet doe they start they've been drinking a little bit and they start feeling tired or whatever so Lorreen offers her bed to to janet doe and she goes and lays down in Laureen's bed. Laureen, takes a uh, takes a pillow and a blanket and says she's going to go sleep on the couch. Now this is the last time that she is ever seen from from that point on. Now from the uh, New Hampshire Department of Justice, the Office of the Attorney General states that on April twenty seventh. 1980, at about uh, 3.45 a.m., the Manchester police responded to the call that said there was a missing uh, 14-year-old female. Uh, Ron's mother, uh, Laureen Ron's mother, Judith, had reported her uh, gone. Uh, She actually got home from the tennis tournament at about 1.15 a.m. Now, when she got home, here's where things start getting a little weird. Uh, She gets home, and she notices that every single light in the apartment hallways are unscrewed. all the light bulbs. now this is not the lights are broken, the fuse isn't bust they're turned off. they are unscrewed from the sockets. Obviously she thinks that's a little bit weird. She goes to the front door of her apartment and um... Now, judging from this, you would think it's some kind of uh, few apartments inside an actual building. Seeing as how the lights from the hallways were turned off, there wouldn't be hallways if it was a, a triple decker. So she notices that the uh, the front door is unsecured. Uh, I heard two various reports that the front door is actually cracked open a little bit, and I also heard, or not heard, but saw a report that uh, the front door was actually uh, closed but unlocked so I'm not sure what to, uh, exactly take from that, um, she comes in, she goes to Lorreen's bedroom, and notices a girl sleeping in the bedroom, who she assi- assumes is Lorene. now I don't know what prompted her to be still awake at 345, maybe she was winding down from a long drive, something like that, I have no idea, but that's when she actually goes into Lorene's room, and, uh, like, checks on her a little bit more closely and notices that it's Lorreen's friend, uh, Janet Doe. Now, uh, Janet Doe, she says, where's Lorreen? Janet, Janet Doe replies, she's, she got a pillow and a blanket and said she was going to sleep on the couch. Now, she goes out into the, into the living area and notices that the back door is wide open. Now, how she didn't notice that when she actually got home, I do not know. Um, You would think that unless it's around a corner or something like that, that uh, they would be pretty noticeable. Now, there were absolutely no signs of a struggle whatsoever. Um, All her clothes, except for what she was wearing, are still in the apartment. And uh, a brand new pair of shoes that her mother had uh, recently bought her were actually still at the apartment as well so the police go there and uh you know start doing a little bit of investigating now the the crack police work that the state of new hampshire apparently does they did not take this seriously right off the bat they actually assumed she was just a runaway and really didn't uh get into any details and probably missed out on a lot of A good time that they could have spent. They always say that the first 48 hours. Are extremely crucial for any investigation. Which. You know you would have to agree with that. Well apparently it took a few weeks. For them to actually come to the conclusion. That maybe there was some foul play. Now why. The uh, light bulbs being unscrewed. From sockets. Wouldn't maybe spark a little bit of interest. Is beyond me. Okay. That's just. Ridiculous right there all in itself. There also had recently been another missing girl named uh, Rachel Garden who disappeared about four weeks before that um, from a town about 45 minutes away. That that's going to play into the theories a little bit later. We'll get back to that. Now, I don't think they really put two and two together, so they really didn't try to build any connection on that. But like I said, we will get into the theories about she'll be in the theories later. What happens from here is absolutely nothing. Okay, there's not really an investigation. She's actually considered a missing person at this point. Now, no, there's no real leads, anything of that nature And uh, all of a sudden, a few months later, actually, it'd be more than a few months, but in October, um, she starts, well, actually, before this, she actually is receiving phone calls, okay, at roughly 3.45 in the morning. Now... Why that would be the same time that the police called, I'm not sure. This is just what I read. I couple, read a couple various reports on this, so take it with a grain of salt. But the fact that Judith Ron, uh shortly after, within I think two or three weeks of her daughter's disappearance, was receiving phone calls at 3.45 a.m., uh, actually very frequently. Now, the person on the other end of the phone wouldn't actually talk. They, You couldn't even really hear him breathing. Uh they would just be on the other line. They would be calling her. Um she was kind of getting a little bit freaked out by this. And in in October, I think about the middle of October, she actually gets a phone bill. Judith Ron gets her phone bill, and she notices that there are some calls that are charged to her line. Now this is where the case gets even even stranger. There are three phone calls on her uh, charge to her phone bill. Two of these phone calls are coming from a motel in Santa Monica to a motel in Santa Ana, California. The other uh, phone call that was charged to her phone bill is to a teen sex assistance hotline and uh i don't know when the dates of the santa monica to the santa ana motels was but i do know that the uh the teen sex assistant f- or assistance phone call was on october 1st now some of you before probably don't remember but before the golden age of cell phones all right i'm 35 years old so i remember this um you could place collect calls from landline to landline now when somebody was not on the other end to accept the charges, what you could do is you could actually uh, take a pin number like you would your family would have a pin number that way. If nobody was there to accept the charges, or if you basically weren't trying to call your specific landline, you would and you would call the operator, tell them the number you wanted, give them the pin. And uh, you would be able to just pretty much call anybody you wanted, anywhere you wanted, and it would be charged to whoever's landline is associated with that PIN number. Now, you might think it's a coincidence. Personally, I think one time might be a coincidence. But three times within a few days of each other, and judging by what happened and the phone calls early in the morning to Judith Ron. I highly, highly doubt that this is uh, anything other than downright foul play. Something's going on. Okay. Now we're gonna let's say we're gonna flash forward a little bit. Yeah, actually, before we do that, she she actually received uh, Judith Ron actually received calls during the holidays as well. Now, uh, Laureen Ron actually had a sister. Uh, I'm not sure of her name. And uh, for those of you wondering, there's no real mention of her actual home life, whether or not she was happy. Uh, there's no mention of her dad anywhere. So we'll just leave that out in the backfield. Not really touch on that until maybe part of the theories. But now during the holidays, uh, her sister reported getting a few phone calls where she could hear somebody breathing on the other end. Now you would think a uh, missing missing teen girl you know by this point you know 14 15 years old on the other side of the country maybe want to call home maybe got into some trouble or something that you know probably wasn't all that good of an idea at the time yeah you know you, you would think that she would you know maybe want to call home hear her family's voice whatnot but the thing that bothers me is if you can if you can trace a call from a motel in california to another motel in california using a pin why couldn't they trace where these calls were actually coming from Uh, i tried looking into that there's absolutely no mention of them really looking into any of this so with that being said uh there is actually a small investigation uh there is some Uh, Cops, I believe, I don't know if they worked like interstate or if some investigators or detectives or whatever actually went to California. But they actually uh, go out there and start investigating the two motels and the teen uh, sex assistance hotline uh, company, whatever you want to call it. So they get out there. Now, there's a guy who runs this hotline with his wife okay uh he, he is an actual he's a surgeon from uh, i think he's a plastic surgeon not 100 percent on that but he runs this teen sex dis- sex assistance hotline and uh with him and his wife uh, he gets interviewed has no idea you know he says well i don't you know i don't know anybody you know there but then he kind of defers and says uh well There's a lady that works with my wife uh, in the fashion industry that is actually in the porn industry as well by the name of Annie Sprinkle. Now, Sprinkle is, she used to be a really, really big porn star. She's actually a really huge, these days, she's actually still in the industry, believe it or not. Um, But she's actually a pretty big advocate for People who are trying to transition out of that lifestyle and, uh, you know, get healthy, clean, whatever, try to start a new life and all that stuff. She's actually a really big advocate of that now. So the cops are investigating this and they think it's a little bit weird, you know, that this guy has no idea, but then says, Hey, you know, this, you know, porn star works with my wife. They do some, uh, you know, fashion stuff together or whatever. Maybe she, she, you know, she probably knows something about her. And he actually states that uh, this uh, Ann Sprinkle uh, is actually sometimes houses runaways. How the hell this guy would know this? I have no idea. That's a little sketchy in my book. But uh, on top of that, they, they find out that the two motels where the calls uh, were... Uh, placed, and received are actually pretty notorious for being involved and linked to the child porn industry in California ran by a man named Dr. Z. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, I tried looking up some stuff on Dr. Z. Let me tell you something. I didn't really want to dig too deep because I don't want that kind of shit in the history on my computer. You know what I mean? But from all accounts, they, the investigators could not link anything from this doctor to his wife to Sprinkle to this Dr. Z, okay? Now, personally, I find it a little odd that there's a man who runs a teen sex assistance hotline who technically would be a surgeon... And, uh, is a doctor, alright, see my air quotations here, I know you can't see them, but he's a doctor, and it just so happens there's a guy close by who goes by the name Dr. Z, who is in the child porn industry. Little weird on, well, you know, kinda weird. So, basically, uh, time, time elapses, oh, oh, this is another good part too, I almost forgot this. Um, the cops go to actually interview uh, this Annie Sprinkle. And instead of actually interviewing interviewing her, I could not find any report on them actually interviewing her or even talking to her. What they do instead, being the awesome crack team of uh, Dick Tracy's that they are, they decide to watch a shit ton of... Miss Sprinkles pornos to see if they can spot her, meaning Laureen, in any of the porno movies. So, man, yeah, you did hear that right. All right, I couldn't believe it when I heard it, and I literally read it in more than a few places. I actually heard it on another podcast as well, so I'm going to say this is fairly fairly accurate but instead of actually going to miss sprinkle which i'm sure they did and she probably said oh i have no idea what you're talking about and they're like oh okay well we're just going to watch a bunch of your porns and if we see her you're going to be in trouble so that's pretty much what they did they watched a bunch of miss sprinkles porn movies thinking that apparently she might show up in one in the background or something i don't know what their uh what their train of thought on this Uh, You know, ingenious investigation was, but it was pretty much left at that. They could not find any link between Miss Sprinkle and uh, Lori and Ron or the doctor or any of the child porn. Nothing links together. Now, how how that all pans out, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that into the theories. Let me grab a drink here real quick. All right. So about five years goes by. This would be about 1985. Judith Ron actually hires her own investigative team. Uh, they go out to California, and they do about the same investigation that whatever cops actually did out there. But at this point in time, they go to interview the uh, the doctor who runs the teen sex hotline, and all of the sudden, he he remembers that maybe there was a girl from new hampshire that uh that might have been around and to check with miss sprinkle again because you know she houses the runaways now the guy didn't didn't remember it like six months after it happened but somehow five years later it suddenly dawns on him that oh yeah maybe you know maybe uh maybe i did uh, hear about a girl from new hampshire who was a runaway Uh, that actual lead got absolutely nowhere again, uh, so the cops pretty much retreat. There's no real new evidence, uh, going out to the West Coast. Now, in 1986, actually, uh, in 1985, before we get to 1986, uh, something very curious happens, and, uh... John Doe, who was the young gentleman who was uh hanging out and partying with uh Lori and Ron the night she disappeared, actually commits suicide. Now, whether he had a troubled home life, whether he felt guilt about something that he knew had happened five years before, nobody really knows. There's no real info on anything about this kid. So, just keep that in your memory, Banks, for when we come to the... uh to come to the theory section but yes the young gentleman who was there the night she disappeared and said that you know she he specifically heard her lock the door behind him when he left uh actually committed suicide five years after she disappeared now in 1986 uh there's a phone call to a lady in uh in manchester new hampshire and she says she uh the girl on the other end of the phone says her name is either Lori or Laureen. The The lady could not remember. And she was actually trying to get a hold of somebody who she hadn't seen in, in a long time and used to be one of her boyfriends. Uh, and believe it or not, the lady couldn't remember really any of the conversation. There's no details on the conversation. That's the only tip that I got. Uh, that I could really find. I don't know the dude's name. I don't know what he actually said about it. But but yeah. In 1986 there was a phone call. Um, and it was actually. Derived from California as well. Uh, that came in. To Manchester New Hampshire. To a woman's house. You know the girl on the other end of the phone. Said hey my name's Lori or Laureen. She couldn't really remember. And was looking for. Um, this lady's son. And of course. You know, he wasn't there. Phone got hung up. You know, that could have been a huge tip. Hard telling. Uh, you never know. But I wish people could remember phone conversations a little bit better. Probably could have solved this case by now. So, with that being said, for several, several years after Lorreen's disappearance, uh, Judith Ron receives phone calls. Regularly on holidays, and the person on the other end of the phone again would not say anything, they would just listen. Um, to me, that's it, could be one of two things. It could be, you know, laureen maybe being too ashamed, she ran away, you know, wanted to be a big Hollywood actress, got caught up with the wrong people. Uh, It could have been a very sick and twisted individual messing with the family. We really don't know. Because apparently they didn't know how to uh, trace phone calls back then. Even though they can trace, you know, freaking collect calls. You know, I don't get it. The lack of investigation on this case is pretty much astounding to be honest with you. But with that being said... Those are the facts. Um, those That's pretty much the facts about the case. Now I'm going to give you a couple little more tidbits of information here. Um, in my research, I actually found a post. Uh, it was actually a reply on Reddit. And uh, it was uh, about this case. And the reply on this post was actually from a girl... Who claims to be the daughter of uh, of Janet Doe, the young girl who was with uh, Laurie and Ron that night that she disappeared? Who actually stayed at her house? Is saying that you know every time her mom talked about it, she would say pretty much exactly what was always uh, you know in the papers or in the police report. Uh, really wouldn't go into too much detail, but apparently this girl's dad uh, had a little bit more information and said that the night she disappeared, they actually were with uh, two other boys along with uh, John Doe. Now, these two guys were 18 and 21, from what I understand, and uh, the one guy worked at uh, one of the stores close by. And was actually the one that got them the alcohol. Um, Just keep that in the memory bank. That's going to play a factor in, uh, in the theories section here. But I thought that personally was really, really interesting. That's a nice tidbit of information if it's true. Now, I don't know why somebody would just randomly pop in and tell a total bullshit story and then leave her email. She actually left her email on this Reddit post Um, to, if anybody had any questions or wanted to talk more about it, they were free to email her because, uh, she apparently had a little bit information about this stuff or about this case, I should say. Uh, me personally, I did not try to reach out to her. Uh, this post was from a few years ago, so... Yeah, no, I was kind of iffy on that. I don't want to randomly I mean, my email is "Mysterious Circumstances 99 You know, somebody gets an email from that saying, Hey, what do you know about Lori and Ron? You know, I don't want to freak anybody out. And hard telling whether or not it was true. So, I did not bother reaching out to, uh, to this person. Another little thing. Uh, it's a pretty good tidbit of information from what I understand. From 1976 until, you know, just up until a few years ago, there are there were, from what I understand, 11 unsolved disappearances around this area of New Hampshire. Now, 11 in roughly, you know, 30, 35 years, that's actually pretty good. Now, the weird part is is that apparently three of these disappearances happened within six weeks from one another. Uh, the most notable one would be uh, Rachel uh, Rachel Gordon, I think, or or Rachel Garden. I'm sorry, Rachel Garden. Um, Rachel Garden actually disappeared on March twenty second, 1980, which was, you know, a little bit before it was... Uh, almost damn near a month before, uh, Ron did. Uh, she was actually from, uh, she was from, uh, Newton. I think it was Newton, uh, New Hampshire, which was roughly, like I said, about 45 minutes away, uh, or 34 miles. Sorry for all you metric fans. I really didn't work out the math of 34 miles to kilometers. So it's about 45 minutes away to the East. The, Interesting part about this is Rachel Garden was actually 15 years old, which is right around the same age of Lorreen Ron, uh, and right about the same build. When she was uh, Rachel was five foot one, a uh, hundred pounds. Laurine Ron was actually five foot four, ninety pounds. And the craziest thing about it is. If you look at a picture of these two side-by-side, side, they could be sisters. They look a lot alike. Um, there is actually another report within, I think, about two weeks before or after those two disappearances of a woman named Denise Denault, who was 26 years old. Now, I tried looking for as much info on this one as I could, and I really could not find any kind of information whatsoever. So with literally no information on Denise Dinal, it's hard to say there might even be a connection with this. Uh, unless I could see a picture, see what she looked like. This woman, uh, Denise, was actually 10 years older than these two girls. So let's say a sex trafficking theory or something like that probably wouldn't hold much uh, because, of the, because of the age difference. Usually, obviously, you know if you're trying to traffic children, you're not going to look for a 26-year-old. But, at the same time, it could be. Now, the interesting thing about Rachel Gordon, or, I'm sorry, I keep doing that, Rachel Garden is that she was actually last seen talking to three guys who were fairly unsavory characters in the neighborhood, from what I understand, um, one of which, actually, years later, uh, went, was actually convicted of assault and rape. So with that being said, it's not, you know, let's say, you know, these were younger guys too. They were, I guess they were between, these three guys were between the ages of 18 and 22. Now, maybe it's the same guys that were hanging out with Laureen that night. It's hard telling. Um, now, given all these facts and little tidbits of information, let's try to look at some theories. Uh, I'm going to go from probably, in my opinion, least plausible to most plausible. Now, the first theory uh, that the cops obviously went with was the runaway factor. I find it really hard to believe that um, a 14-year-old girl, unless she had somehow met up with an older guy who who promised her the moon and stars and I'll buy you more clothes and I'll buy you another new pair of shoes, uh, I find it hard to believe that she would run away leaving everything. Uh, I think there's a chance she might have... Maybe left momentarily with the intention of coming back uh, very quickly and obviously never did come back. But I totally throw out the runaway theory. Uh, It's just too weird and there's uh, with uh, some of the details of the case, there's no real leg to stand on with the runaway theory uh, until there's more information maybe about her home life. Uh, maybe her dad. You know, stuff like that that we don't know about. That's not public knowledge. I really don't think that she ran away at all. Now, the next theory is that uh, she was kidnapped and, uh, and murdered. Now... I This is very plausible theory. Um, you know all the details of the case. I've told you everything that I know. And uh, personally, I honestly don't think that she was murdered. I think she lived for a while after she was abducted, uh, given the the phone calls. That's just too weird. That is just too much of a coincidence. There is no way. Uh, I do think that she was abducted uh if you're talking about a five foot four 90 pound girl you uh a guy of average build let's say 5 10, 175 i'm 5 foot 10 175 pounds i could carry 90 pounds uh either across my shoulders and walk at a fairly regular pace uh from door to road is maybe like 10 15 yards tops you could do that in probably about 10 seconds so the fact that uh when they came home too, the uh you know the light bulbs being unscrewed there's only one reason for the light bulbs to be unscrewed and that's for people to not see what the hell you're going to be doing to you know it, it suggests premeditation basically um, there's not really too many theories going on here. I, you know, I I totally discount the runaway one, but if you want my personal opinion on a theory, uh, obviously foul play was there. I think earlier that day, I think the the guys that bought them beer uh, actually had something to do with that, and I think the uh, the younger uh, John Doe actually might have known more than what he let on. Or maybe even when he left out the back door left it unlocked on purpose um I do think it was premeditated uh because of not not only because of the light bulbs, but the fact that I think somebody knew her all right i don't i'm I don't know if they knew her for six months. I don't know if they knew her for twelve hours. I don't know, but I think whoever took Lorreen Ron knew her. Because of the fact that she usually goes out of town with her mom. She's home alone with friends. She's drinking some beers, drinking some wine, getting a little fucked up. Alright, now, and that's the thing too, nobody ever said she was drunk. They all just said she was drinking, so she could have been fairly sober. Some people actually suggested that it was a uh, prank. You know, one of the theories, oh, well, the light bulbs are just unscrewed because it was a 14-year-old girl trying to play a prank. You know, and it's like, I could think of uh, a lot better pranks to pull than uh, unscrewing some light bulbs out in the hallway. Alright. So basically what I think happened is, I think somebody knew she was home alone. I it was totally premeditated. I think the light bulbs were unscrewed on purpose. Um I do I do get kind of get the feeling that the uh, the John Doe knew something about it, not just because of the suicide, but I just I just the way he left claiming that he heard voices. Um actually uh, the other girl never said that she actually really heard anything, but apparently he did. Um he left in quite the hurry. Now I think, you know, maybe somebody knocked at the back door just after he left or something, and uh, she might have thought it was him coming back, and maybe it was the older kids that bought her um, the beer, bought them the beer, uh, saying, "Hey, you know, let's let's go somewhere and hang out." Now, whether or not, you know, these dudes knew, you know, child traffickers in california or not i'm not too sure that's one hole in my theory but you never know stranger things have happened but the chances of a random act like this is just astron it's just the odds are just astronomical because i mean she's usually always with her mom when her mom leaves town this is the one time that she's home alone with friends and drinking so I think somebody knew her. Knew her mom was not home. Uh, knew pretty much how to talk her in, you know, to getting out of the house. Um, I do think that the the uh, the Rachel Garden case. I do think those two are actually uh, connected. Uh, those are just two strange coincidences, very close to one another. Um, I mean, these girls look a lot alike. If you're really interested in this case and you decide to look stuff up, it's pretty interesting. Um, Same build, same hairstyle, same hair color. They look almost exactly alike. They're both 15, 14 years old. Uh, That's just too coincidental for me. And and I mean they literally happened one month apart within a couple days. Uh, That's just too coincidental for me. I think I think those two are connected. Now, the Denise Denault one, there's actually no info on that, like I said, so I really can't bring her into the equation if there is maybe even a connection with that one. Uh, I do think Laureen made it to California. Uh what happened after that i am not too sure um judith ron actually remarried moved to florida she actually received phone calls around the holidays for until she changed her phone number um i really don't think judith was involved obviously but I mean, you see parents of missing kids who literally will do everything in their power to either stay in the same house or keep the same phone number, thinking that maybe one day their child is going to make contact with them. Yeah, I find it a little bit weird, but at the same time, you know, you gotta you gotta let a grieving parent try to move on. You know, you can't just remember... You know, the one bad thing that happened in in one, uh, you know, an entire uh, good good young life. But, uh, with that being said, that's pretty much all I got for you. Yeah, it's a pretty strange case. There's little tidbits here and there that maybe don't make sense. But, yeah, I do think the two disappearances were connected. Um, Given the time frame, the appearance height weight everything like that um i do think it was i do think it was premeditated i mean i have no doubt about that the the trying to figure out something random like this like cuz basically where i come with that is some people are like well they took out all you know they unscrewed all three four all three floors of hallways unscrewed every single light bulb it's like You know, they're trying to suggest that, well, I'm just going to grab the first person that walks out a door. Okay? I don't think that for shit. I think this was premeditated. Somebody either did that uh, during the day or actually, uh, you know, before, just before she might have been abducted. Uh, I do, like I said, I do think she made it to California. Now, one phone call from California um, could be a coincidence, but the... Three phone calls using Judith Ron's pen uh, in charge to her phone bill. Uh, that's just too coincidental, and that that includes all the phone calls of silence um, that were that uh, Judith received, and especially around the holidays. Now, like I said, this continued for several years until Judith remarried and actually moved to Florida and changed her number. Um, so with that being said, there's all the facts, there's the case, and there's the theory, and then there's my opinion of what happened. Um, if anybody has any any information on this case or might know something or, or anything, obviously, uh, you know, you want to contact the correct authorities because from what I understand, uh, New Hampshire actually, I think it was in 2013 or 2012, actually started their police department... Uh, in New Hampshire, I believe, or Newton, I can't remember which one, actually started a cold case unit. And I know that the uh, the Rachel Garden case actually recently got reopened within the last few years. Um I'm pretty sure the Laureen-Ron case is still open, too. Now, there's a couple Jane Does that have wound up dead in the Southwest. I think one was in uh, Nevada and another one in Texas to where they actually thought that they were uh, Laureen-Ron, but upon further evidence, she was actually ruled out. Um, So you never know. She could still be alive out there. She was born in 66, so, you know, that's, what, 50 years old? So, I mean, it's it's not, not unheard of that she could still be alive out there. But I will say this. I do think that the doctor had something to do with it. I think he deferred attention away from himself and his wife purposely. Um, the fact that he's a doctor and there's an infamous child pornographer who calls himself Dr. Z. Um, I think all that out there is just way too coincidental way too coincidental. Um, if it were me, I would uh, interrogate him, that, and that would probably maybe include some waterboarding. Not 100% sure. Uh, you know, I would decide that when I actually came to it. Um, but, there's the case. You guys wrap your heads around that. Lots of... Lots of little theories. There's only probably about two or three good theories, but that's mine on what happened. Uh, before I get off of here, I would like to say if anybody does have any suggestions for an episode that you would like me to to uh, tackle or try to investigate, uh, you can reach me at MysteriousCircumstances99 at gmail.com. That's MysteriousCircumstances, then the number 99 at gmail.com. Um, I'm usually pretty quick to reply if you do email me, uh, especially if it's, you know, further discussion or anything like that. I do. I actually talk to co-workers a lot about the podcast that I do. So I actually, you know, I do talk about this outside of the podcast quite a bit to other people. I do like to hear other people's opinions on stuff. Um, if you do have the time, I am uh, on iTunes. Uh, you can give me a rating. You know, if you're going to give me a one star and tell me how bad I suck, you know, you can either uh, do one or two things. You can either email me and tell me what I can improve on and make it constructive criticism, or you can not listen to my podcast because, you know, that's it is what it is. Um, but for those of you who do feel the need, maybe give me a good rating on there. I do have a couple on there couple reviews one you know only gave me three stars but she also provided some constructive criticism which i am trying to work on now uh, uh i am on every podcast app there is uh you know Podbean, just everything pocket cast i mean you name it i'm on there i'm on stitcher um itunes actually gets me a lot of exposure so that is the case uh, right there, the disappearance of Laurie and Ron. Like I said, if anybody has any suggestions on another case, or maybe even has any theories about this case with a couple details that I left out or did not know about, please get a hold of me. I would love to hear them. Um, before I go, I got to give a shout out to Kevin McLeod uh, from Incompetech dot com for the intro and outro music. That's royalty free music, and I'm really happy to be not getting sued overusing that music track, so I'm pretty happy about that. But with that, uh, there's uh, there's the whole case, all wrapped up in a nutshell, with uh, me trying to dig everything out of my brain in a timely fashion, and uh, with my half a page of notes here. But uh, till the next case, I'll see you guys on the flip side. Have a good one.